you know, I, I often come from a performer's point of view. You know, I kind of latch on to the performers and try and explain what made them unique. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's the holidays, and that means it's time for our annual Top 10 in Physical Media. Fellow Nitrateville moderator Bruce Calvert and I go through the year's best in vintage films on shiny plastic discs. Streaming? What's that? Plus, frequent guest Steve Massa returns to talk about silent comedians you probably don't know, but should, in his new book, Lame Brains and Lunatics 2. Other things you should, subscribe to Nitrateville Radio so you never miss an episode. And leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks! Hello, Bruce. How are you? I'm great, Michael. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So here we are, uh, ready to talk for three and a half hours about Jean Dilma, the uh, <laughs> the new <laughs> number one on the list of the greatest films ever made. I really thought it should have been number three. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So seriously, let's talk vintage film because the, all the good movies are old movies. You know, one thing that I thought that we're seeing this year in the way that uh, people are appreciating old films is that uh, we have a new video format, uh, 4K. I mean, it's a few years old at this point, but we're starting to get older movies, which is my measure for when a uh, format is worth a damn. Um, you have a 4K player, right? Yes, I do. I don't have any classic movies that are 4K yet. I need to get some because I just got my player a couple months ago. But the thing is, a lot of films have been restored in 4K for the last five or ten years. It's just they haven't been available. When they're available on Blu-ray or something, they're not at 4K. But, I mean, they still look really good. But Warner Archive especially has put out, I don't know, eight or ten titles in 4K, of course, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, but there's there's some also from I think I saw Holiday Inn came out a few weeks ago hmm. from Paramount. So I'm dying to look and look at those and see what they're like. But yeah, as so you've noted before, we already have three copies of Casablanca. Do we really need another one? <laughs> right. I could throw on the laserdisc of The Adventures of Robin Hood or the DVD or the uh, the Blu-ray. There may be a VHS somewhere. Who knows? But yeah, the uh, you know, there's there's some things. I mean, I'm, it all looks great that there's 
Citizen Kane and the Red Shoes and Kino Lorber's got some titles out now like Paths of Glory and and so on. You know, so it's not just what you see initially, which was I noticed there's a beautiful box set of all the child's play films. So, you know, you can just see Chucky and all the 4K <laughs> gorgeousness that that he could offer you know that's the kind of thing that doesn't interest me but i have to admit you know i have a few 4k discs but i I have not watched anything in 4k off a disc because i don't have a player yet and i there with all these things are releasing i mean they are movies that i own multiple copies of so i don't know how quickly i need to race out and get paths of glory again one thing you always ask me every year when we do this is do you think the physical media is going away and this year i i can tell you that i really don't think it is because there's been so many kickstarters by so many people that are outside the mainstream of like kino flicker alley criterion things like that i mean i was just ticking off a list before we started this Ben Modell's done Kickstarters, Ed LaRusso, Andrew Earl Simpson, Dave Glass, Dave Wyatt, Joe Harvett, Michael Oss in the Nile Silent Film Museum, and Grapevine have all just done Silence. There's probably more that have done early sound films. And then, and then other companies that have sprung up, like the Film Preservation Society, too, has released a couple Blu-rays in the last year. So it's just like there's more physical media coming out that we thought wasn't going to be available 10 years ago. Yeah, no, it seems like, I mean, the big labels kind of went through that moment where they were all going to go to streaming. And I feel like that moment has already passed, uh, you know, once AT&T got out of Warner Brothers' hair. But, the you know, the smaller labels, and I think led by Kino to a large extent, they figured out what money they can make of it. And once you, you know, if you control your costs and you pretty much know what you're going to sell, you can make a business out of that. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing all of them, I mean, very steady release schedules, uh, just cool things every month from from a lot of these labels. Um, Something I think is kind of fun is that this year we're going to have a couple of labels on the list I know that we've not featured before. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's... there was a point where I was worrying that it was going to become the Kino Lorber show because they were going to be the last one standing. But uh, it's it's not all Kino Lorber for once. And the good thing, too, is about all of these companies, whether it's Flickrelli or Kino or these Kickstarter projects, is a lot of them, even though they're available on disc, a lot of them do get sold to TCM and show up on TCM, whether it's Noir Alley or the Silent Sunday Nights. And they also make it to streaming, too. Right. A lot of the Warner stuff turns up on uh, HBO Max, which I just read is just going to become Max, which mm-hmm. seems stupid to me. But anyway. And one other thing about HBO Max is there was an article that came out this summer was originally HBO Max wanted to be like everything for everybody and have everything possible that they own streaming. But when they merged with Discovery, I don't know, it cost them how many billion dollars and they realize that if, to have a television show or a movie on their streaming service has costs, not just for the physical hardware, but also they have to pay rights to whoever owns a film unless they own it themselves. And if it's a TV show or a movie from the last 40 or 50 years, they probably have to still pay it to the producer. And a lot of their stuff was getting zero or one view a month. And they realized that they were losing money on it, so they started right. cutting back on everything that's available on streaming. And so we're going to be back to only the really popular stuff is available on streaming again. All right, so what, what do you 
you know, speaking of 4K, what do you have? What what have you acquired? Well, I I don't have any classic discs at all. I, I like I said, I my son just gave me a 4K player um a couple of months ago and he gave me like Wonder Woman and uh, I can't remember. I've got one other film that I haven't watched yet. So, but okay. I guess I'm I I really need to get I really need to get a Warner Archive disc or something and uh, yeah. see how it looks. But regular Blu-rays look incredible playing on this too. Right. Yeah, it's I you know, I was thinking it's kind of like when I first had uh a laser disc player and believe me everyone i knew got to watch at least 10 minutes of blade runner off my laser disc <laughs> you know cuz i just, listen the sounds coming from the back i don't know about you but i had a it was another year where it was really hard to pick my favorite new releases for the year there's so much stuff that came out and i couldn't afford to buy what i wanted even if if i could but yeah no i mean again a, a really strong year i mean one that places like uh, Kino just kept that pace up. I mean, yeah. I, I swapped one out on my list just in the last week that I happened to watch. Um, and then, you know, as I said, we're getting, we've got some new labels, so that's pretty cool. Um, all right, well, shall we, shall we dive into it? Yeah, let's go. Bruce, give us your number 10. Well, normally when someone asks us to go to the movie with them, the first thing we ask is, what kind of movie is it? Meaning, what genre is it? Is it a mystery, an action film, a rom-com, or a horror film? But some films don't fit into genres, and my pick for number 10 certainly is not a genre film. Hello, Vic. What brings you home so early? Jeff and I spent the day going over those Broadway properties. We've climbed more stairs and inspected more lofts and cellars. I'm tired. Vic, let's get an agent to look after it all. I have an agent. You are he. Then let's sell some of those old buildings. Never sell. Never sell, Rip. Not on the island of Manhattan. But the neighborhood is going down. Nonsense. Look at that crowd. People creating trade and a demand for land. People flowing down Fifth Avenue like a river of gold. It's Kino's Double Door from 1934. It's kind of an old house, Edgar Allan Poe type of film, but there's not really anything supernatural in the film, no monsters or anything. It's definitely a pre-code, but it doesn't fit into a simple category. It stars stage actress Mary Morris in her only film role as Victoria Van Brett, a woman who runs her Victorian household with an iron fist, even though it's 1934 and not the Victorian era anymore. Sweet Evelyn Venable plays Anne, a woman who dares to marry Victoria's brother Kip, played by Kent Taylor. Besides Anne, the family members and servants in the house are spineless and always give in to Victoria's demands. Now, we usually think of evil people as criminals, but sometimes they can be family members. And when Anne disobeys Victoria one too many times, Victoria lures her behind the locked double door of the title. Supposedly, audiences of both the original play and the film in 1934 yelled at during the performance or at the screen because Victoria's actions were so awful. And I can neither confirm or deny that I did yell at the screen myself while watching this film for the first time. <laughs> I thought this was a blast. Uh, I think I first heard of this because Michael Schlesinger showed it at Cinecon, or at least saw it there. 
and talked about it. I mean, it's it's such a barnstormer. It's very much a stage piece, but nicely adapted to the movies. The centerpiece of it is, you know, this this hidden chamber within a room and it's just right there in the middle of the stage. So I'm sure people in the audience were just thinking the whole time, who's going to end up, you know, in the hidden chamber, you know, behind the double door, who's, you know, who's going to have to fight for their life in there. And the movie, you know, just drags that suspense out really well. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's a lot of fun. Uh, very, very vivid, loosely based on tr- a true character, yeah, but in that case, it was the father that didn't really allow his daughters out to get out and get married and be out in the world. Yeah. But this Kino disc has two great commentary tracks on it about the real-life family that inspired the film and about the making of the film and actress Evelyn Venable. Hmm. If you're looking for something different from a 1930s film, this is definitely a great one to watch. And that's from Kino Lorber. Yes, uh, a Paramount film, uh, which they licensed from Universal. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, so many of the things they're releasing are these licensed films from Universal. But Universal, I don't know, it's like they have a complex about their own history. If it's not made by James Whale and has Boris Karloff, mm-hmm. they're not that interested in it. I was, I was very pleased to see... It's actually another James Whale film, but they released a uh, a very slickly made film that could have come from Paramount, but it is actually a a universal take on on this kind of uh, you know Viennese uh, comedy. Really, I mean, it's kind of a romantic farce, and it's called By Candlelight. Um, it stars uh, Paul Lucas as a butler, and he's the butler to a a prince uh, played by Nils Aster, who's kind of a Lothario. And so, you know, he's, he's trying to learn the tricks of seducing women and things like that from his boss. Who's, you know, a master at it. Joseph, the wrong time. I beg your pardon, your highness. Yesterday you sent me out without spats and tonight the wrong tie. What's the matter with you, Joseph? In love? You are in love. Yes, Your Highness. And it's one of those things where it winds up that they end up trading places for some convoluted farcical reason. Uh, And Lucas, pretending to be the prince, meets uh, Alyssa Landy who is pretending to be her boss, who's a countess. We don't know this at first, but, you know, this is a plot we've all seen many times, so we can guess that. And it's the kind of farce where you basically get the same scenes played out multiple times, but they get sort of more and more anarchic and comical each time as things get more and more out of control for the main characters. It's it's quite a funny movie. I mean, it's so fast-paced. I was really surprised. And we don't think of Whale as somebody who does comedy, but he certainly has kind of a a mordant sense of humor in a number of things, especially Bride of Frankenstein, and that really comes through in in By Candlelight. I mean, it's just a it's a fast paced, funny, um, kind of absurd, but but sweetly likable um, 
you know, romantic farce where you just hope it works out well for everybody. So that's that's fun. A movie that we have not seen before and, and out in a beautiful print. I mean, it really looks nice. So, All right. Let's do number eight. Well, okay, Michael. <laughs> I've always loved the Argang series of short films. Hal Roach started the series in the silent era in 1922, and it was hugely popular until he sold the series to MGM. Although MGM pretty much ruined it with their preachy storylines, it still survived until 1944. Last year, Classic Flicks started releasing collections of sound R-Gang comedies in the order that they were released. There's a total of six sets now covering the shorts that Hal Roach produced from 1929 through 1938. And soon Classic Flicks will release a seventh disc with the foreign language versions of some of the shorts and some Little Rascals television appearances. Now, I've had 16-millimeter film copies of quite a few of these comedies, and they were also released in transfers from 16-millimeter previously from, by companies like Cabin Fever and Hallmark. The shorts in these sets are now transferred from 35-millimeter prints, and they look and sound amazing. For this show, I got set number four, which consists of 12 shorts from late 1933 into early 1935. It's really easy to underestimate how popular these shorts were in the 1930s, since we have quite a few television shows today with talented kid performers. The years 1933 to 1935 were the depths of the Great Depression, but these films celebrated how poor kids could still have great friendship and great fun. While no film in the United States could or would show African-American and white people being equals and good friends, this film series did show black and white kids playing together with every single entry. The series does slip occasionally into stereotype portrayals of black people, as in The Kid from Borneo from this set, but that film is still quite funny anyway. And given the segregated environment in America at the time, it's remarkable that black characters like Stymie and Buckwheat were the main characters and that white characters accepted them as equals. There's so many good titles on this set, but a few of my favorites are For Pete's Sake, where Mean Leonard Kibrick breaks Marianne's doll, and the gang has to trade Pete the dog to Leonard's mean father to get a replacement. And Wild Poses has Spanky getting his portrait taken by prissy photographer Franklin Pangburn, but, Frank, but Spanky is afraid of getting shot by the photographer. And while she irony, rich kid Wally Albright has to perform a recital for his mother's garden party, but he sneaks off for a game of football with the gang. Unfortunately, his outfit gets covered in mud and the gang's attempts to clean it are a complete disaster. Yeah, I was wondering when you said, you know, that you've wanted to do Little Rascals Volume 4. It's like, okay, so what's what's so special about Volume 4 versus the other ones? But yeah, that is kind of the prime period. The only, the only one I've picked up was the very first one. I just wanted to see how they did it. And I mean, it lo- they look fantastic. You know, they are the really earliest talkies. So they're they're a little stiff by comparison. They, well, I mean, there were, I think there were several prime periods. Obviously, the later period, too, with Spanky and Alfalfa and Darla and Porky and Buckwheat was a good time, too. But when they went into one reels, they were a little more formulaic. I mean, I still like them. That was in uh, 36 through 38. But this period right here is right when Spanky gets introduced and Buckwheat gets introduced, too. But 
he's kind of, I mean, this is updated for the 2020s. He kind of switches gender between female and male from short to short. They can't decide what he's going to be until he gets old enough, and it's obvious he's a male. So he turns into the buckwheat that we all know and love. Huh, I, I did not know that. So, But yeah, these are these are really nice restoration. I mean, they compare with the Laurel and Hardy ones that were done a couple of years ago that we named number one on our list that year. Um, you know, they just... They're they're all cleaned up. I mean, to me, the authentic uh, arcing experience is a little rough and ready. It's a little fuzzy looking, and and preferably has Leonard Malton uh, introducing it. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, yeah, these these look gorgeous now. And uh, anyone who has kids or you know is is similar in outlook to a kid certainly. Uh, ought to uh, get their hands on this and and check it out. All right, number seven. Speaking of labels that we have not uh, honored before, the Indicator label from the UK, uh, which I think is a sub-label of a company called Powerhouse, but I'm not going to swear that it's not the other way around. I don't know. Anyway, let's, let's just call them Indicator. Um, I have a few discs from them, but they're all Region Bs, or they have been all Region Bs. Uh, I have a couple of the boxes of Columbia Noirs that they've put out. And I mean, they're really nice presentations. You know, they have, those come with booklets, with essays. I mean, all the, all the niceties that you'd want from a collectible Blu-ray. The film, though, that I want to recommend, because it just seems a little precious to be uh, talking about uh, discs that most people can't play because they're Region B. Uh, They put out one this year, a movie that I had never heard of, and it is an all-region disc. Um, This is one that I found out just because somebody's talking about it on Nitrateville. It's called Pastor Hall. And it's actually the first feature of the Bolting Brothers, who would later do things like Seven Days to Noon and I'm All Right, Jack, and, you know, a lot of comedies in the 50s and 60s. It's loosely based on uh, Pastor Martin Niemöller, who was a uh, Protestant pastor who was resistant to the Nazis, a, a German pastor. Um, wound up in a concentration camp, but somehow amazingly survived the war. A film loosely based on Niemöller, but made entirely in England, um, or made entirely on studio sets in England with English actors. The main character is the actor Wilfred Lawson, who I only know from things very much later in his life. I guess he was a very hard drinker, even by English actor standards. So you see him as as a quite elderly butler in uh, The Wrong Box and things like that. Lawson was, was very highly respected by his fellow British actors. And he's really quite strong in this as, you know, a simple and fundamentally decent guy up against the Nazis. You've only to sign this and you will be released. What does it say? Just a paper saying that you will in future refrain from any criticisms of the party or the Führer. Naturally, you will have to keep quiet about everything you have seen. Well? I will not keep quiet at man's behest when God commands me to speak. Don't be a fool, Hall. God can't help you here. No, no, I will not sign. When I leave this place, I'll shout its horrors from the housetops. You are making things damnably difficult. These evils cry aloud to heaven for a voice to denounce them. Silence! 
No, there'll be no silence now. You and I stand face to face, unmasked in the sight of God. The words I speak will belong to another, not to me, but they shall be spoken. You damn fool, if they hear you, you will be flogged. I dare you to do it. They are here. The time has come, Paul. I implore you. I denounce you in the name of God. There are a number of interesting extras on on the disc, and including some other films, short films made during the war by the Bolting Brothers. They actually won an Oscar for a documentary called Target for Tonight in, uh, I think, 1944. There's also a lot of interesting stuff about the fights they had with the censors over this film, because it was, you know, it was just seen as not good for the government's position during, you know, kind of that late 30s period of the phony war and the uh, Chamberlain government trying to uh, keep peace with Germany in some way, you know, to just come out and make a blatantly anti-Nazi film at that point was something that the the censors managed to suppress for at least another year uh, before the film kind of finally got made. I get the feeling it came close to being lost. I mean, the print that they that indicator got from the BFI is quite good in most cases but there are a few places where we'll just lose a line cuz some footage is missing so it may be all that survives at this point but in any case um Pastor Hall a really interesting film uh a disc with a lot of extras on it there's also an interview with one of the Bolting brothers about making the film and things like that um so yeah, that's one, you know, it just was a a great thing to learn about and, and then see this very strong film. Yeah, it, I haven't seen it, but it sounds really interesting to me because it was made when the war was breaking out in 1939 and released in 1940. And the fact that there were very few films made in the U.S. that were anti-Nazi at the time, too. So you know they had some really strong headwinds in getting this film made. All right, number six. Hello, handsome. When did you leave Kansas? <laughs> she got you that time, kid. Shut up, you hyena. He's very shy, miss. Don't mind him. Play off, sailor, or I'll swamp the deck with you. Ah, oh, don't hurt him, handsome. I came from Kansas once myself. As fast as I could hoof it. <laughs> Well, Joan Crawford's reign from 1932 has been around in poor quality TV prints and public domain DVDs for decades that don't really do the film justice. The Mary Pickford Foundation and VCI have teamed up to restore the film, and it looks really sharp now. It's the story of a group of people who are stuck in Pago Pago when their ship is quarantined due to cholera. A missionary couple, played by Walter Houston and Beulah Bondi, and a doctor and his wife are forced to stay at a small inn along with Sadie Thompson, who's a prostitute played by Joan Crawford. The missionary makes it his personal mission to make Sadie repent for her sins and gets the governor to order her back on a ship to San Francisco where she will surely be put in jail. This film is the second of four versions of the celebrated play. It's definitely a pre-code film, but it was still subject to censorship due to the subject of prostitution and the minister's relationship with her. And director Lewis Milestone really opens up the play with lots of atmospheric shots of rain and mud, and the camera is really moving around a lot. But I also enjoyed it when the sparks fly, when Sadie and the minister butt heads in about the middle of the film. Joan Crawford claimed it was her least favorite film, but she actually gives it an amazing performance. 
In this disc has two commentary tracks. The track by Richard Berrios is really informative, and I can really recommend it. The other track is by pre-code expert Miklas Saul, and it's quite different as he's not a fan of the film. The disc also includes the 1938 reissue version that was censored and shortened, so there's a, actually another version that you can watch of the film. And we get stuff like a photo gallery, and as a bonus, there's a restored color Betty Boop cartoon named Poor Cinderella from 1934. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoy this. This is one of those things that when cable first really took off in the 80s, it was easy, easy to find uh, playing in a bad print. Um, another milestone film, the front page was the same way. And I remember just thinking at the time, eh, you know, this, this looks so good. I mean, it starts with this very expressionistic, picture you know almost eisensteinian picture of you know rain in the tropics that i just thought you know i don't want to see a bad version of this i'll wait for a good one well i waited many years here um but nevertheless yeah i mean it's good to finally have a really good copy of this out there i think um that crawford is is terrific in the role walter houston i know he's a great thespian everybody would rank him among the best actors of the 30s but he, he kind of hams it up a little as the pastor i, th I think he's mm -hmm. um you know he's he's not as strong as she is and they also i you know i i read the story after watching it and you know there's a few things sort of glided over in the in the telling in the movie that make more sense in the story but nevertheless i mean it's a strong film she's very good it's Beautifully photographed, um, interesting sound mix, although some may want to put on the titles because the movie's called Rain, and you're going to hear a lot of rain in this movie. When you had mentioned that on Nitraville, I thought I almost was tempted to do that when the rain was pouring down in a few scenes, and it was a little hard to hear the dialogue. But well, One thing I really loved in this film, too, was Joan Crawford's transformation from Sadie to when she decides to come clean and not be a sinner anymore. She just turns into the regular Joan Crawford. And I was thinking, well, I want the old Sadie back. She was a lot more interesting. <laughs> yeah. She's not, she's not Mae West in this for sure. I mean, she, she has some guilt about, you know, where life has taken her. And so she's very susceptible to Houston's, uh, preaching, uh, no matter that we suspect it's, it's pretty hypocritical. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, a, a very interesting film, a lot going on in it. Uh, glad to have a good copy of it at long last. All right, now I'm going to go in a totally different direction for number five. We haven't done a noir yet, which is unusual for us. Um, but here is one called Shakedown. Uh, Howard Duff plays a guy trying to break into the newspaper photography racket imagine trying to get into journalism you know that just seems so out of you know so un 2022 to me but anyway so he figures out there's there's kind of a it's a little bit like miller's crossing or red harvest or something like that in that there's there's a rivalry going on between two gangsters one of them is brian don levy and the other one is uh, lawrence tierney uh, which is one of the things that got me interested in interviewing the author of the Lawrence Tierney bio in the last episode. Um, so Duff has this great idea that if he kind of 
puts them against each other and sets up trouble. He can be there to take the pictures when uh, they start, you know, shooting each other or blowing each other up and stuff like that. Well, that's only going to last so long before they start to figure out that uh, it's funny that he tends to always be where bad things are happening. So I think his, you know, you think that early on that his time uh, running this racket on the rackets maybe is not long for this world. But in any case, it's, uh, you know, it's a really good suspenseful uh, noir with just everybody's got an angle and is playing it in a usually dishonest way. Um, it was actually uh, the first film of a B-movie director named Joseph Pevney, uh, who had been an actor, and he, you know, he made B-movies for another decade, and then he went into TV. And if you've seen anything he's done, it's probably The Trouble with Tribbles. He was the, you know, one of the two guys who directed 14 original Star Trek episodes, uh, including uh, some of the most famous ones like City on the Edge of Forever and The Trouble with Tribbles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's really the thing he's known for. But it's interesting to see in this uh, where he came from. Um, So, yeah, that's from Kino Lorber. And let's look at the back here. It's got... Commentary by professor and film scholar Jason A. Nay. I don't know him, but uh, anyway, yeah, so Shakedown. That's a lot of fun. I mean, I saw a lot of noirs this year, and that's the one that that just seemed like the meanest and the most fun of them to me. Bruce, number four. Well, my favorite noir was our next selection. And Eddie Mueller says that every film noir is about a character who knows that doing something is wrong, but they go ahead and do that something anyway. And then they spend an hour of scream time suffering the consequences. <laughs> so in repeat performance from 1947, which was released by Flickr Alley, Joan Leslie plays Sheila, a woman who has to shoot her husband when he tries to kill her. She believes that his surly behavior was all her fault because she chose a career on Broadway rather than support his career as a writer. But in a science fiction twist... She gets a do-over at midnight on New Year's Eve, and she gets to live the same year over again. Since she knows what will happen in the future, she can change the decisions that she made the last time. But this is film noir, and she can't stop fate. It's like a play. We're out of town trying it out, and we find the third act is wrong. So it's rewritten, all different. We play it over again, and it's right. It's fine. That's what I'd like to do with the year I've just lived. Rewrite it, play it over again. But I can't, it's too late. Now, Joan Leslie is terrific in this film. It was her first film after breaking her contract with Warner Brothers, where she was typecast as everybody's sweet little sister. I don't normally notice women's costumes in movies, but Joan's gowns were by Oleg Cassini, and Joan really wears them well. And Eagle Lion was the studio that produced this film. They were not a major, but they really knew how to put together some dynamite film noir films on small budgets. The Flickr Alley disc is loaded with extras like an introduction by Eddie Mueller, a commentary track by Nora Fiore, Farron Smith-Nime, well, that's the first time we've mentioned her today, (laughs) narrates a featurette on Joan Leslie's career. Then there's also a half-hour program on the Eagle Lion studio, if you love film noir, you really need to add this disc to your collection. Yeah, you know, this was a movie that I had not seen or even heard of until I saw it a few years ago at Cinevent. 
And the notes said it was always played on New Year's Eve, uh, you know, almost like uh, It's a Wonderful Life was played mm-hmm. on Christmas. And, you know, well, maybe in New York it was. It wasn't in my in my mm-hmm. TV market. So I had, I had never seen it. But, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting film. I mean, it's one of those noirs that really kind of comes off more like an extended episode of Twilight Zone yeah, than a conventional movie. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot, and it, you know, after seeing Joan Leslie in that, it was fun to see her in things like uh, oh, what's the movie with Ida Lupino, where she's the the man I love, where where Ida Lupino is the ambitious sister, yes. and Joan Leslie's the the cute kid sister, um, because of course Ida Lupino isn't that attractive. You know, only in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so, I mean, repeat performance, you know, one of several noirs to come from Flickr Alley this year. And I agree. I mean, it's it's the strongest one of at least the English language ones that they released. All right. So next up, my number three. Um, this is actually the only one of the movies that we're talking about, on my, at least on my side, uh, that I had seen before. Um, and it's kind of an interesting, it's interesting to me that, you know, when I was a kid, I had this book, it was just this, this set of books of world history, but one of them had a section on, you know, movies around the world. And so, you know, I was like eight years old and I'm being introduced to names like the passion of Joan of Arc or the childhood of Maxim Gorky or whatever. I mean, this kind of old fashioned view of what the classics were back then. Yeah. No, Jean Dielman, oddly enough, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it was probably five years away from being made at that point. But anyway, uh, one of the films it mentioned that I never heard about playing anywhere was this movie called the Indian tomb. And it's a German two-part silent adventure epic, very pulpy. It's written by Thea von Harbaugh and her husband, Fritz Lang, hoped to direct it, but actually producer Joe May took it away from him and did it himself. It stars Conrad Veidt as a uh, an Indian Raja who hires a Western architect to come to his uh, principality and, and build a memorial to the woman he loved. The only problem is she's not actually dead yet. So he clearly has something sinister in mind for her and is a little unhinged, increasingly unhinged as the movie goes, goes on. But, uh, the real fun here, uh, is just how elaborate this German fantasy of what India is like is. I mean, it's, it was back in the era when, you know, labor was dirt cheap Germany in the early 20s. So, I mean, built huge sets. They're palace buildings that are literally five stories high of of plaster and lath or whatever it is. Um, I'd be a little careful climbing some of those higher levels, but uh, nevertheless, you know, you get this very lavish picture that I'm sure is just in a field outside Berlin somewhere. And Conrad Veidt is just wonderful. I mean, I, I remember when I first saw it about 20 years ago when David Shepard put out a version, I thought, you know, he he's like David Bowie in it. He's this sort of androgynous mm-hmm. prince. At one point, he's dressed up. He sort of looks like the Chrysler building. He's got so much, like, silver and shiny stuff on him. But, you know, just a lot of fun seeing this kind of just pulpy pulpy adventure stuff with a lot of uh 
twists and turns to it. You know, as I said, Shepard put out a version when it was initially restored, I guess, sometime in the, the early 80s. 90s. Yeah, he put it out in the early 90s, 90s. But yeah, in the 80s, someone did a restoration. I mean, that's why we never saw it. I mean, I never heard of it playing anywhere. Mm-hmm. But uh, that version came out. And I, I think this is basically the same restoration. It runs about a half hour longer. But I tried to do some spot checking. I sure can't tell where the half hour comes from. Um, it doesn't seem noticeably slowed down, but at the same time, I didn't see anything that I didn't recognize having been in it before. So I don't know what the story is with that. But anyway, I mean, it's a really nice version of it. It's a good looking print and I like the score a lot. It's by a Czech couple who are named the Havels, but they have another name. Let's look in the tiny, tiny type music, the Havels. Okay. That's they're not named Havel. They're named Havlovi. Uh, but anyway, so it's an interesting score. A little unconventional for a, a silent. It's got, you know, some definite Indian aspects to it. It's got, I don't know, it kind of just does that sort of raga thing of repeating and stuff like that. But it's at the same time, it works as a dramatic silent movie score. You know, it's just, it's a fun film. I I saw Lang's 1950s remake of the story not long ago, which is also cheesy in all the best ways. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, it's it's fun to you know have both both versions of that in a in a superior copy. I don't know who I'm ever going to convince to sit and watch six hours of two <laughs> different Indian tombs with me, but but there it is. So. Well, on to number two. Okay, Criterion has treated us to another classic this year with Love Affair, directed by Leo McCary. Irene Dunn plays Terry, an engaged and kept American woman traveling by ocean liner to New York. She meets a playboy named Michelle, played by Charles Boyer, who uses rich women to finance his lifestyle. They both meet on board ship and fall in love, But if they're to make a relationship happen, they'll have to drastically change their lifestyles first. So they make a pact to meet in six months at the top of the Empire State Building if they're still in love with the other and they have been able to make a new life in New York. But tragedy strikes when Dunn is struck by a truck on her way to the Empire State Building and Michelle is bitterly disappointed when she doesn't show up. If the story sounds familiar, it's because director Leo McCary remade it in 1957 in color with Cary Grant and Deborah Kerr as an affair to remember. And Sleepless in Seattle from 1993 also refers to the ending, but more from an affair to remember than love affair. After a sparkling romantic first half, the film really takes a right turn into sentimentality after Terry's accident, but it's still a sweet film. Irene Dunn sings three songs, too, and one of them named Wishing was a huge hit when the film was released. As usual, Criterion adds a lot of extra things on the disc, so in addition to the main feature, we get a 20-minute featurette that has Farron Smith-Nemme again discussing Leo McCary's career, the production of the film, and the censorship problems it encountered during its production. And Serge Bromberg's Lobster Films restored the film, 
using McCary's personal print and another 35 millimeter print from the Museum of Modern Art. It looks really terrific, especially because this was another film that was in a bunch of public domain type transfers that looked awful in 16 millimeter for the last 20 or 30 years. And Lobster Films also provides two great Charlie Chase silent comedies that were directed by McCary, Mighty Like a Moose and Looking for Sally as Extras. And finally, we're treated to two radio adaptations of the movie, too. This was a disc I was very happy to see come out because I've always loved the movie. But as you say, it's been in terrible versions for a long time. There were even versions where they took the music off. Um, I'm not quite sure how you do that, but I guess they can do that sort of thing. Because the music's copyright was very clear, but Mm -hmm. the film's copyright you know, it had apparently fallen out of copyright. So, you know, you you could put it on El Cheapo cable channel if you had, mm-hmm. you know, if as long as you got the music out of there. So anyway, it's great to finally have a good version of this. You know, as you say, Serge has a little film showing the difference between one of those, you know, bad 16 prints, poorly printed for TV use, and the beautiful McCary print. The film is, you know, looks better than I've ever seen it, and it's just a, it is a sweet, very moving film. So, it's great to have this at long last. Um, I mean, I'll tell you what, Irene Dunn, she looked good in those old prints, but she really looks fabulous in this restoration. Okay, and now for our top physical media release of the year. Speaking of Serge Bromberg, he's also responsible for our number one this year. This is tough for me because I just saw another thing he put out, a, a French silent that I love so much, uh, but it's not the one that I picked for this. And that's Casanova with Ivan Mojikin. You know, that's a lot of fun. If you want to, you know, much like the Indi- Indian tomb, if you want to see how much money foreign studios could spend on making, you know, gorgeous, lavish sets, uh, there's the movie for you. But anyway, this is a set that is like going to a retrospective at somewhere like Pordenone, because it's just a whole bunch of films. Are all of them great? No, not necessarily. But there are enough really, really good ones that it's well worth getting the entire set and seeing really the development of a talent. And the talent involved is Julien de Vivier, French director, best known for uh, things like Pepe Lamoco and Panique, which Criterion put out a couple of years ago. When I was talking to Serge about this set, I was asking him, you know, who would you compare him to? William, William Wyler is one of those uh, possibilities, although Wyler was specializing in super productions. He did not only do that, right. but... Uh, uh, I would think of a more independent uh, director who would go from silent to sound like uh, King Vidor, maybe, uh, although a bit more uh, uh, French. And this set, which is called Cinema of Discovery, is really devoted to almost all of his surviving silent films. I think there's at least one that the rights were different on. But basically, de Vivier's son was able to get hold of the rights based on French law about, you know, who's the author of the film and that kind of thing. So it's 10 films in total from about 1923 or four to the end of the silent era. And I would say there's, there's three films on it that are really pretty great. 
Uh, one is the first silent version of the French classic Poil de Carotte, which is about a uh, redheaded kid who is neglected by both parents and and sometimes very sad and angry about that. It's it's a moving film about childhood, but also, you know, just one of those films of French life in the provinces. I mean, it's a tiny town. I think, you know, the dad eventually ends up winning the uh, the race for mayor with a vote of something like nine to seven or something <laughs> like that. Um, but, you know, really a moving film. Then there are a bunch of other films. I mean, he sometimes adapted uh, stage comedies. There are a couple of, you know, religious films, including one about uh, St. Therese of the Little Flowers that Serge insists is is an anti-religion film. I just think it's I think it's a sincere film about a rather oppressive religious life. But in any case, uh, you know, that's that's for you to decide. Um, then the two toward the end that I thought were especially strong. There's a, a kind of religious romance called The Divine Voyage about a young woman whose boyfriend is lost out at sea and eventually the Virgin Mary helps bring him back. And that one, you know, if if de Vivier had a religious phase, I mean, and that's maybe the best argument for that period. And then the final film in it is is incredibly lavish. It's a film of Zola's novel, Au Bonheur des Dames, Ladies' Paradise. And it was actually filmed in Galerie Lafayette, which is still in existence and operating as a department store in Paris. Uh, so you just, you know, you have this enormous uh, set of the of the department store, but also it's about how society is changed by this new invention, the department store. So there's you know the whole you know there's kind of activity on every level of the neighborhood there's a there's an older uh merchant who is being driven out of business by the department store basically and and an amazing sequence that plays like obligance where he sort of goes crazy listening to the constant construction next to him and imagines the whole thing falling in on him and stuff like that um, so, I mean, this incredibly vigorous, epic sort of tale of a department store, you know, treating it as if it's, it really kind of reminded me of Metropolis and how the, you know, the, the giant machine comes to life as, as a monster, you know, it's, it sort of plays out like that. So, I mean, a fascinating film that unfortunately, I guess, bombed because it came out right as sound came out. There was a sound version, and I suspect we should be grateful that it doesn't survive. In any case, uh, so, you know, three outstanding outstanding films, a couple of more that are very strong, uh, good scores throughout, good restorations throughout, you know, a, a kind of an amazing set for a very reasonable price. Yeah, I really loved uh, Ladies Paradise too. I, it really felt relevant for me because what do we have nowadays? Big box stores come in and they put the mom and pop stores out of business. And in this film, they he literally the the department store puts the the small stores out of business because they buy the buildings all around it and tear them down. And if you're tearing down the building right next door that's attached to your building, they're tearing down your building too. Yeah. <laughs> And it's interesting that that Denise, who plays the, I guess the the niece of the guy that owns the mom and pop store, has to go work in the department store and 
obviously working there, people treat her terribly. She has to sleep with the boss if she wants to uh, keep her job. And again, that's totally relevant now. So it's very refreshingly modern film. And you also watched The Divine Voyage? Yes, I did. I love The Divine Voyage, too. Uh, the one thing about The Divine Voyage is that uh, Sheila, the girl that who her boyfriend's lost on the ship, her father is the one, the reason that all the sailors are lost is he doesn't want to spend any money on his boat. He just wants him to get out there and get to work. It's almost like a, a French version of Battleship Potemkin because the, the workers revolt against the capitalists, but in this case, the workers are just as bad, and they just get on the ship and drink and let it crash up against the rocks rather than take over. Yeah. Um, no, I, and, you know, it's interesting. I mean, both of those films kind of have an aspect about how commerce, uh, you know, dehumanizes the worker, mm -hmm. things like that. I don't think... Um, I don't think he's particularly a politically political radical, but he was clearly, you know, in tune with those sort of Zola-esque ideas about what to dramatize in French society. So, I mean, a really a really strong set um, that gives you a lot of insight into how a major French director evolved. Now, it helps obviously if you've seen some of his other films, you know, so I certainly recommend getting to know him in, in the sound era as well. You know, he's, he's a, an important director came to Hollywood even and, and directed uh, what flesh and fantasy did a version of Anna Karenina with Vivian Lee. So, you know, a major talent who had been relatively hard to see a decade ago. And now we've got this and there's a criterion set of some of his early talkies and things like Pepe Lamoco and Panique out. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of ways to see and get to know this. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to me because I mean, it's been a few decades since I've been to college, but when I was in college, I took a uh, a French film class, and that's where I learned about René Clair and Renoir and stuff like that, and we definitely did not watch a, a Duvivier film. And so it was amazing to me to just hear about him and then see two of his films, and they were really, really good. Yeah. The, the only thing, the only way I had heard of him before, because he had directed Pepe Lamoco, and I haven't seen that film either, but I knew that Algiers with Charles Boyer was, you know, a remake of that one. And we should mention too that this box set, besides all of the films, it's got a booklet, it's got image galleries, it's got uh, people from lobster films had several French critics come in and they, they talk about why the films are great. Of course, they're uh, subtitled because most of them are in French. It has some restoration demos on it. So just a whole deep dive into, into De Vivier. Links for all our top 10 in physical media will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. And if you're wondering about a certain set that we talked about here on Nitrateville Radio, well, I just haven't gotten my copy of Cinema's First Nasty Women yet. I'm sure it'll show up as soon as this episode goes live.
An incredible number of comedies were made during the silent movie era, quantities so vast they'll never be completely documented. So begins Steve Mass's new book, and few have done more to document that seemingly infinite world than Massa. A librarian by day in the New York Public Library's Performing Arts Collection, an organizer of silent comedy retrospectives at the Museum of Modern Art, the Library of Congress, the Giornati and Portinone, and co-host with Ben Modell of the Silent Comedy Watch Party, viewed around the globe since the lockdown began in 2020. His new book from Bear Manor Media, Lame Brains and Lunatics 2, More Good, Bad, and Forgotten of Silent Comedy, is a follow-up to his original 2013 book and to his book on women in silent comedy, Slapstick Divas, which we talked about on Nitrateville Radio in 2017. I spoke to him from his home in New York, and I started by asking him how he got into silent comedy from a start as a performer in theater and television. Yeah, I was an actor, you know, basically doing doing whatever I could. And I did, but for 25 years, I did tons of television commercials. I did appear on Broadway and off-Broadway. Uh, not really a singer, so, okay. you know, mostly comedy, comedy stuff. You know, I, I often come from a performer's point of view. You know, I kind of very much latch on to the performers and try and explain what made them unique, that kind of thing. So I think I come from, you know, uh, that kind of um, looking at them as performers from being a performer myself. Okay. And then were you always a silent comedy fan or what? Uh... Yeah, I was. I mean, even as a kid, I mean, I was watching, I saw them on television. I mean, this was Oh, I'd hate to say the late 1950s. And there was a lot of filler for kids. Sure. And there were series like Who's the Funny Man or Comedy Capers. And they would take a two-reeler and cut it down to 10 minutes, take out the titles, sometimes have a funny narration, and basically make them into cartoons almost. There was tons of that on television. And I got hooked very early. Um, and I started recognizing people you know, from short to short, or sure. even when I would watch the Our Gang or I would watch the Laurel and Hardy sound shorts, which were also all over television, I would recognize people from the silence who were in the sound film. Um, so, and I wanted to find out more. And really, at that time, there wasn't any real information yeah. uh, about them. That didn't come till the Calton Lehu books. I think the first film book. Uh, I ever bought was Daniel Blum's pictorial history of the silent screen. Right. And the second one was Mr. Laurel and Mr. Hardy okay. and John McCabe. Then that kind of got me started on the road to ruin as such, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So uh, was Lame Brains and the Lunatics one, your first book? Yes. Yeah. That was the first book. I had been writing a lot of program notes for programs that like Ben and I were doing and, 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 uh, but I decided I really, I, I had initially the book I wanted to do was slapstick divas. Okay. That was the book I had in mind because I thought the women were so neglected. And of course we've talked about this book in the past, you right. and I, but I thought, can I really write a book? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, well, if I expand some of the ideas and program notes and things I've done and make them into different essays, maybe that, you know, I could try to do a book that way. So 
I did Lane Brings and I thought it, you know, I was very happy with the way it turned out and thought that I really could write a book, you know, from, from doing that one. So what was the, the premise of Lame Brains was basically rediscovering people who you felt had not gotten their proper credit or what? Yes, basically, yeah. So how did you decide on the ones that you had in mind? Well, it was more, I always say the subjects kind of pick me um, because it's people that I have like a, a really burning desire to find out more about. And at that time, it was Marcel Perez. Or right. it was Billy Ritchie, it was Alice Howell, and uh, Gail Henry. It was like, who are these people? They're wonderful. You know, when you see the films, they're wonderful. And it was very hard to find out more info about their careers, where they came from, how they started, how they ended up. But there wasn't info readily available. Well, yeah, and like Perez is a good example because nobody was even quite sure who he was, you know, he, he turned up under multiple names, depending on what country he was working at at a time or where uh, his films were being released. I mean, it was just truly a mystery man. He really was. I saw a couple at MoMA, his American films uh, that he made for Eagle Films in Florida, and they were Czech prints, I believe, and uh, they had Czech titles, so we didn't know exactly which films they were at that point. But I was, you know, extremely taken with him. And I just, I had to find out more. So I started digging into the American films, which then led me back to his European, to his Italian films, where he worked as Robinet, right. Robinette. And then, but he was, you know, when he was at Robinette, he was very well known internationally. And he was called Tweedledum over here and in England. So it was basically going through the trade magazines. Uh, the New York Public Library had all the trades. And I was going, I started in 1916 and was just going page by page looking for things about Tweedledum and Eagle Films. And I started there and then I would go backwards to the Italian films and I would go forward to his later films. You know, there was no uh, media digital history um, right. <laughs> website. So I really, you know, just spend hours going page by page. Sure. Yeah. Now, did you know that Perez was these at least three different sort of characters that he was Robinette and Tweedledum and Marcel Perez, or was that something you found on the way? That's kind of found on the way. I mean, I knew of a couple of them. I did know that he had worked in Italy. So it was easy to trace Tweedledum as, as Robinette. But then there was Tweedy and there was right. Tweedy Dan. He had all these different names. And his name was different always, too. It was uh, uh, He used a different last name in Europe. Uh, and now I'm having a senior moment and I can't remember what it was. <laughs> oh, Marcel Fabre. But then he was born Marcel Perez. Sometimes it was Manuel Perez. I think his gravestone says Manuel Perez. So it just seemed like everybody he worked for, he just changed his name constantly. Yeah. Which seems odd as a, you know, as a choice for a long running career, but. It was more, it was more, it was done more in Europe because somebody like Andre Deed, when he, he would leave Italy and make films in France, he had a completely different name. So it was a little more of a European thing, but Perez took it to, you know, the nth degree. 
Yeah. It was just, and trying to chart his career, I almost started thinking he did it on purpose just to screw me, you yes. know, because it, <laughs> it was just, it's like all these twists and turns. And that's, and that's, you know, he, his, his American career has still really been overlooked, but he was celebrated for the films he made in Italy. And again, we are talking about Portanone. They would, they often show the Italian films that he made, but they, you know, they, I don't think they've ever shown any of the American films, although we talked about it a few times. Yeah. No, there were a couple of them this year. So yeah, they always, you know, he's a favorite there. Right. And I was able to go, I know that guy. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about. Okay, so you did Lame Brains back in was twenty thirteen. Yeah, twenty thirteen. And then uh, Slapstick Divas in about twenty seventeen. Having convinced yourself you could write one book, you decided you could write two. Yeah. And in the meantime, yeah. a lot of these things started coming out with Ben Modell on home video in various ways. Yeah, the DVD sets. And we did the Marcel Perez, so then we put out a Marcel Perez book as well. Yeah, which, you know, now I think it's just things like YouTube have changed how we read books like these. You know, I'm just mm. I'm going through your book and just going, hmm, I wonder if that's on YouTube. And I immediately go and look. And, you know, often they are. Yeah, often they are. Or another film by that person. Right. You know, you know, you might be able to, you might not find a specific Billy Ritchie film, but there might be another one. So at least you can see them. Yeah, you can get some idea of this person and their persona and all that. It's not like, yeah, and not like reading about film. 18th century French prime ministers and where it doesn't mean anything yeah. to me, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, all right, so then, yeah, one of the ones that you put out that figures in this book is Musty Suffer. Let's talk about Musty Suffer for a minute. <laughs> okay. Well, that's such an odd little series. I mean, and of course, the star was Harry Watson Jr., who was a big stage name, you know, because he was appearing in the Ziegfeld Follies, some of the first Ziegfeld Follies. Which I thought was kind of odd, hearing that, and then his films... I don't want to say the films are low rent, but he's a low rent character. He's kind of a tramp, but yeah. not not in the slightly you know shabby elegant way that Chaplin is. I mean, he looks like someone who would show up at your doorstep hoping for a free sandwich, so. a real handout. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, and the films themselves, the films are kind of purposely low rent. They almost look like they're made by children, like children built the set. <laughs> and things yeah i mean it's it's a very unusual kind of surreal it harkens back to the to the early european clowns and early european filmmaking with the fake sets and and that kind of right it's very strange it's you know you've got i mean they came in 1916 but you've got chaplin kind of really moving ahead with the mutual series and but yet you've got the musty suffer, which is kind of a throwback to earlier style. I mean, what do you think back then was, you know, was that, say, 1910 Italy look still current in silent film? Or do you think he was evoking something that was very passe by that point? I think they were going with something that was passe. I think I think by then, because the Max Senate films look very different than Musty Suffer. You know, they look, and, and because of Senate being influenced by Griffith, the editing and the Senate films are very, you know, 
very sophisticated. There's a lot of editing where in the musty suffers, it's it's more sort of real time kind of thing and not a lot of cuts and okay. you know things play out almost like it's on stage in a way. So were these pretty successful in their day? Yeah, they were extremely popular. There was a big film ex- exhibition exposition, I'm sorry, in Chicago. I think it was in 1917. And Pickford was there. All these huge people were there. It was a big thing. And they gave Musty Suffer the key to the city. <laughs> and they had a, spe- a special Musty Suffer night where he did. Uh, he had a boxing routine that he had done in the Follies with um, Billy Reed. So they recreated that. So it was like he was touted like the big star where they had people like Pickford and, uh, you know, big names, much, much more remembered names today. And they did three of them of these, you know, they were like a serial, 10 episodes, what they called whirls. Each episode was a whirl. And they did the three of them, but then it like completely disappeared. That was it. And it really wasn't that influential on anything else. I think it was more influenced by things that went before, but it didn't, didn't really carry on. Now, do you think that was kind of typical that we have a bias toward feature films, uh, particularly after comedians start being in feature films? Yeah, that's very true because you know you hear the stories of the Ch- of Chaplin. It didn't matter what film, what short it was, they put up a sign, "I am here today." Yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I think it was the same thing with Arbuckle and and. Yeah, people love the shorts. I mean, the industry looked down on the shorts, you know. And when they put someone like Arbuckle or Mabel Norman in features, they had to put them in more sophisticated. You know, they they couldn't make slapstick features right away because it was kind of, you know, low class. But I think, you know, I think often, I mean, and you read exhibitor uh, comments in the trade magazines and they'll say, oh, well, that Billy Ritchie short saved my program. (laughs) Yeah. So I think audiences, yeah, they love the shorts. I mean, that's why the Chaplin's mutual films were exhibited forever. Yeah. You know, they were reissued. They were reissued in sound in the thirties, you know, with the musical tracks and, and they were just in constant use because people love the short comedies. 18 minutes of laughs, you know, is guaranteed at least. Well, that's like, you know, with Laurel and Hardy, their best stuff with, the sons of the desert and way out west aside their shorts are their best films I mean, yeah you know they're just crystallizations of 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 their work yeah, yeah i think it also i mean a lot of personalities can go into a short where you you know you need to be yeah. more realistic and more down to earth in some way to carry well, you have to be able to carry a plot right you know? and you take somebody like larry seaman who was a clown. There's no depth to his character. He's, he's, he's a clown. Again, he's a bit of a throwback to the early European clowns. But when he did features, his career crashed and burned because he couldn't carry a feature. Yes, yeah, so you kind of have a defense of Larry Seaman in, in the book. Um, t- tell me what you think about him, well, what, it, what the case for yeah, him is. It's a, it's a partial defense because I do go through and and check all the boxes of the problems people have viewing the films today, because a lot of people really detest his films. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, he's unattractive. He is, he's ugly. I mean, really, he looks like the slapstick Nosferatu, you know, that weird face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he does. He does. And, 
the films are very racist. There's all yeah. kinds of racist gags. I mean, terribly more so, I think, than anybody. And then there's the repetition. Right. If you see a number of his films, you see the same gags over and over. Yeah, he um, lo- he loved white paint hitting a black man the way uh, Disney liked black paint or ink hitting a kid and and making yeah. him into a black kid. Yeah, he loved to have white stuff on black people and dark stuff on white people. He always has molasses dripping on somebody's head. Coming. <laughs> yeah. There's always a, like a big water tower in his films. It's crazy. But he, he had these obsessions. And in the, in the piece in Lame Brains 2, I think his best period is when he was making one reward because they were short and sweet. Um, you didn't get all the repetition. Um, and even when he was directing, before he started appearing in the films himself, he directed shorts with Huey Mack and Jimmy Aubrey, and some of those are really well directed and really, really clever. Yeah, it's kind of like how I feel about Charlie Bowers. I mean, they're they're interesting as heck because they're so odd and built around, you know, sort of stop motion animation or whatever, oh, yeah. whatever oddball thing he's doing. But yeah, I don't know <laughs> that I need to see a seventy five minute movie in which he gets the girl at the end. No, I think that's impossible. And and the thing with the Bowers, I mean, I'm a huge fan. I think they're brilliant, but they're they're not often that funny. Right. But they're just stunning sometimes and, you know, jaw dropping things that, you know, that he brings to life, that he makes these unbelievable things believable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's a a series of his films being toured around Japan right now, as huh. a matter of fact. And I think it would be perfect because I think the Japanese are going to be crazy about him. Yeah. Just just image wise, it reminds me of, of a lot of the stuff I've seen when I was over there and stuff. The kind of crazy, almost pop art kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. So the book starts actually with a long section. I mean, almost book <laughs> book length. You know, on uh, Fred Carnot's army, by which you yeah. mean not just literally his troop, which was referred to as Fred Carnot's army, but just the amazing number of people who passed through it and had some interesting thing. That was one where I just kept going, there's got to be a chapter break here somewhere. But... Oh, I'm sorry about no, that. Yeah, right. there, are, there are two pieces within the book that are almost could be books themselves. One is Fred Carnot's army, and then the other is the silent comedy menagerie. Yes, or animal magnetism, because that one really could have been its own book. And my wife said it should have been its own book. I was like, <laughs> well, okay, yeah. But um, well, there are so many people, British music hall graduates, who were in silent comedy. It really was sort of a takeover. There were just so many of them because you know once Chaplin became Chaplin, everybody looked for these English music hall people. You know, it's what Hal Roach described where he said, you know, there were so many of the English people really knew how to do it, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Well, and, you know, I talked to David Crump, who wrote that biography of Carnot oh, a while back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think he made the good point that because of the laws in England, they had to do everything in pantomime. And so they'd been basically yeah. practicing for silent film for 20 years before any of them got the opportunity to go into it. And that's just yeah. training beyond anyone else in the world, I think. 
yeah, it was a it was a combination of pantomime and music. So it was perfect, you know, for silent film. And also, I mean, that that Carno thing of keep it wistful. I mean, that's yes. You see that, and you instantly understand where Chaplin and Laurel and people like that got it. Yeah, and that that gave it more dimension. It made the characters people as opposed to clowns. You know, I mean, yeah. they were clowns, but they had depth. Right. It wasn't and, just about hitting the other guy with a brick and then laughing or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So that's extremely important. But there were so many people that passed through the music hall. You know, that even didn't work with kind of like Lupino Lane or, you know, there were just so many of them. Yeah. And they were just all storehouses of routines and material that, you know, ended up being translated onto film. Somebody yeah. like Frank Terry, you know, who didn't really make his mark as a comedian in silent film, but as a gag man, he certainly did. You know, he was extremely important for Harold Lloyd. You know, he was the first gag man that the Roach studio really had. Huh. And he was able to bring all kinds of stuff that, that really put Harold's glasses character across. And then he worked all over. He worked with Laurel. He worked with Laurel and Hardy. You know, but he was, you know, he was a big influence bringing all this, all this stuff to, you know, all this material to right. film. Yeah, who are some other people who you think are, are notable. I mean, they did kind of the, the same thing that happened in the British invasion where you try to get, you know, four guys with long hair who looked as much like the <laughs> Beatles as possible. Yeah. Um, so there were, there were certainly plenty of Chaplin imitators, you know, or the cleverer ones doing sort of the variation on Chaplin rather than trying to fool people into thinking that's actually Chaplin. But I don't know, who do you see as really notable that came out of it? Oh, the British people. Well, of course, you know, probably the most, of course, are Chaplin and Stan Laurel, you know, the most original and became the most iconic. Um, I'm trying to think, I don't know if, you know, no one else really reached those heights. I don't, of those two, I think. But then again, they're all like Lupino Lane. He's a wonderful comic. And his films are really, really great. An amazing comic action. I mean, there's one called Made in Morocco where he's in a like a Moroccan temple and there's these huge, huge arches. And during a chase, he runs up a pillar, runs <laughs> up the arch and down the other side in one take. It's, wow. It's absolutely stunning. I don't know how he did it, but and he does it again too he does you know he did it once he does it again in another chase so he's pretty amazing he's pretty amazing and the films are very funny and then he started directing the films uh later too under a pseudonym um henry w george because his name was was henry william george lupino was his uh. real name <laughs> so so again he he started sort of bringing english musical like he, I don't know if you've ever seen Only Me. Isn't that the, uh, that's the one that's basically a night in the show. Yeah. It's basically a night in the English music hall, but he plays all the characters and all yeah. the acts and everybody in the theater. Um, but he starts putting a lot of music hall, real music hall material on film. There's uh, the other one, uh, Joyland, where the second half of the second reel is really like a, a British pantomime. And he's popping in and out of trap doors. It's really amazing. Another one that I'm just like, wow, is this <laughs> is this chapter ever going to run out of material? Uh-oh. <laughs> was the animal magnetism one? 
I mean, yeah. which is is just jaw dropping at how much. So there's there's of course dogs. We all know there's dogs, and there's yep. horses, but there's also yep. chimps. The chimp who marries <laughs> an orangutan. There's oh, elephants. So um, there's yeah. a there's a rat at one point. I mean, it just <laughs> there's so many. You know, I was yeah. I was waiting for like the famous iguana of the silence screen or something <laughs> like that. You know, they could just because they I think they could direct them. You know, it was silent, but there are lions. You know, of course, that became a huge staple. You know, letting the lions loose and everybody running. Uh, but there was one particular lion. His name was Numa, and he was particularly good working with people. So he was sort of the, the lion of choice. He's the one with Chaplin in the circus, where Chaplin goes into the lion cage. Um, he was just, he, you know, his trainer was a guy named Charles Gay, who was sort of the lion king of Hollywood. <laughs> the, he said he had different lions. He had lions that were really good to work with people, and Numa was the best. But then there were lions that were cranky and just really mean and they would use them for close-ups you know of the alliance snarling or, or that yeah. kind of thing um and you know i did you know a lot of what they did with the animals in silent films were taken over in sound with animation you know you had pluto as opposed to uh luke or um teddy yeah. or brownie you know but they start in these series it's 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 kind of amazing. Of course, Pete's probably the best remembered. Pete the pup, you know, best remembered dog because of his our gang appearances. Sure. You know, it's funny. I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, Gail Henry, who was a comedian in the silent era, winds up becoming a, a, an animal trainer instead. Uh, yeah. And has a quite famous one, Asta, who's also in things yeah. like Bringing Up Baby and The Awful Truth. Um, yeah, really, you know the major dog. the major dog star of that time. She and her husband um, Henry East. They started with Buddy. They had the dog Buddy in the twenties, who works with Raymond Griffith and Pats to Paradise and people that handled dogs. There was a guy named Rennie Renfro, and he handled all those dogs that were in the MGM Dogville comedies. Okay, but then he had Daisy in the Blondie films. And Blondie had puppies, so he had all the puppies, too. But, I mean, so they had pretty substantial careers, you know, with these animals. Yeah, now, I mean, one thing I was wondering, you know, you you talk a lot through the book when you just hit the limits of what you can know about some of these people who are <laughs> so obscure. Um, although, as Perez proves, if you keep digging, you know, you can turn up all sorts of things. But with you know, particularly with the animals, I mean, they're not going to have they're not going to leave death records or you know yeah. <laughs> records of you know what they did in their later career. You know, later he went into real estate. Uh, well, later know. though, you do find out somebody like um, Pal, the original Pal, he just they retired him and he he stayed on. Harry Lucinay's had a ranch. He spent the last couple of years, and I found an item that said he had an insatiable appetite for pork. <laughs> so they would just feed him pork, and he was sort of, you know, could do whatever he wanted on the ranch. The one that seems, I don't know, most frightening, even more than the lions, because at least with a lion, you know what you're up against. But I think, yeah, you know, they're feral. Yeah, yeah. People kind of don't realize just how nasty chimpanzees can be. 
Um, oh yeah. So yeah, well, Joe I mean, Martin in particular. Right. So I mean, here's here's a lion. I mean, a, a chimp that was famous enough to have his, you know, his a human style name. He's not just Snooky or something. Yeah. Um, but uh, why did people even want to work with <laughs> with chimps? Is kind of my my wonder. And I say that as someone who grew up on Lancelot Link's secret chimps. So. Yes, I know. There's something about them that are that's funny. Although I know a lot of people that really are creeped out by, you know, chimp films, especially chimps in clothing yeah. kind of thing. I know people that just really get freaked out. And driving English um, sports cars. That, yeah. <laughs> that too. <laughs> but, you know, I think the the saddest story in the, in the whole animal section is the story about Joe Martin. He was the orangutan. Right. And he was, he, became kind of the mascot at Universal, but he had a trainer that was very bad. Um, and that's kind of started the problems with, with Joe because he would just go berserk and he bit people and he would, you know, tear, get out of his cage and tear off the doors and then let all the other, other animals in the Universal Zoo out. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, yeah, it, it, yeah, it really got to where they couldn't, they would have to shoot scenes with him separately yeah. because they couldn't put any actors in the scenes with him. But then they ended up it's a, a terrible myth that they, of what happened to him. But the simple truth, he was sold to the Algae barn circus and where they highlighted him as Joe Martin, you know, movie star kind of thing. So no one had really written not about the animals, but about their trainers. There, there was really nothing previously written about them. So that again was that whole thing of the subject kind of finding me because I wanted to find out more about them because there's so many animals in silent films. And, you know, and often they're very funny, like Anna Mae the Elephant, who was in a number of the Max Sennett comedies. And then she ended up in Gunga Din. She's Victor McLaughlin's elephant <laughs> in Gunga Din. Now, another one I thought was really interesting. You've got lots of stories of what somebody did when they sort of stopped being a top draw in silent comedy or whatever. They do some character parts and then, I don't know, typically in your stories they tend to you know, pass away somewhere in the 30s or 40s. Uh, the interesting different one was Edward I. Luddy. Uh, tell, ah. tell me about him. Yeah, well, he was, you know, he started, he was like an assistant at, at Biograph in New York. I think he was a teenager. And then he ended up at Vitagraph and he was working on the Joe Rock or Montgomery comedies, you know, sort of a gag man, assistant director. And then he became a pretty, pretty busy comedy director for century comedies in the twenties. He directed Wanda Wiley and all these people. And he, he jumped around to different studios, but then he changed his name in the early days of sound to Edward Ludwig. And then he directed B films and television until the 1960s. I wouldn't say any real first-rate film, but you know some yeah. notable films. He's he did that 1940 version of Swiss Family Robinson, which is quite good. Yeah. Uh, and he did the uh, what's it the Black uh, Scorpion, the Black One Scorpion, O'Brien's last, you know, with the with the O'Brien doing the stop action on the Scorpion and right. Um, yeah. And um, some of the TV shows he did, Branded, which when I was a kid was a show I really liked with oh, Chuck yeah. Connors. 
Yeah, yeah. Had a great opening. I could sing two different (laughs) sets of lyrics to that song. So yes, (laughs) the world will never know he was branded. (laughs) The fighting CBs with John Wayne. I'm just looking and Wake of the Red Witch. Um, Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, clearly had an entire later career for a guy who started out. I don't know, you know, wearing oversized hats and running into doors or whatever. You know, whatever he did back no, in comedy he, days. Yeah, and he became, you know, he was a pretty good comedy director. I mean, the problem is a lot of his, his comedy films are missing, you know, because he worked a lot for Universal. Right. And Universal has one of the you know worst survival rates, along with Fox, for their shorts. And But the ones you see are really solidly crafted, a lot of good gags. And he he was a good gag man because in those days it was usually the director was responsible for a lot of the gags. And he was a real you know he became a a real craftsman and that's how he was able to go on and direct features. Yeah. Now it's interesting and you just kind of wonder. I mean, when you're making a movie with John Wayne in the late '40s, do you ever think about you know well here's here's what we did in 1922 at you know, at Century or Eagle or somewhere like that. I suppose well, yeah. everything's in your in your you know bag of tricks to some extent. Well, it's funny you take take a director like Norman Tarog, yeah, because he directed shorts. You know, all through he started with Larry Seaman as an assistant, and then all through the twenties he's at educational comedies directing shorts. But in the thirties he starts directing big features like Skippy and Boys Town. And, you know, he, he worked until the 60s, but he directed some of the Martin and Lewis films. And in the caddy, Jerry wears a checkered flat cap. And I just, Tara directed so many things with Lloyd Hamilton. Then you see the flat cap on Jerry. It's like, did Norman Tarot pick that out as sort of a homage to Lloyd Hamilton? Or at least like, that's what a, comi- that's what a comic golfer should look like. Yeah, what a what a comic flat cap should look like is checkered like Lloyd Hamilton's. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the other one that you, that you talk about, kind of in that context, is someone who definitely saw his his past career as teaching him what he did later on, and that's uh, Leo McCary. Oh yeah, who I think you know, I agree with you. I think he's. You know, for someone who's fairly famous and directed a Best Picture winner and all that kind of stuff, I feel yeah. he is he is underrated in the sense that people underestimate his films. You know, they think things like Ruggles of Red Gap and The Awful Truth are, are good comedies, and they certainly are good comedies. But I think there's a lot of emotional depth in them. I mean... I agree. I agree. I think his films are very emotional. I mean, he's... And he loves people. And he loves their foibles and he loves, you know, he loves characters. So you advance an argument that he kind of got an idea of what of what the structure of a comedy should be from his earliest days. Yeah, he you know, he he was very he, he remained a fan of improvisation. And I mean, they had the dialogue. They knew what they were going to say, but he kept it. He always kept things very loose. And I think, you know, that whole, it creates the spontaneity and it's, it's in there in the awful truth and ruggles and, and, you know, he shot, what is it? Uh, Bells of St. Mary. They have the scene where the children do the nativity and 
he kind of walked it through with the kids and then he let he left the room and let the cameraman shoot it and told the one little boy who kind of narrates it. he said okay you tell them what to do and so he he left the room and he supposedly was looking through a window but it was he left it up to the kids and i can't think of a lot of directors who would do that you know be that confident enough to to just kind of do things spur of the moment like that but i think that's why he was such a great director for the marx brothers yeah no and and as you say you know that that thing of the you know you associate with like big business of well we're going to do you know our sort of comedic attack and then the other side gets their chance to reply you know it's not oh everybody takes turns yeah, yeah. okay i had my turn it's your turn kind of thing Right, which I think, you know, is a huge influence for one thing on like Warner Brothers cartoons. I think you see a lot of that there. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I love the fact that in Ruggles of Red Gap they're doing hat routines. Right. <laughs> uh when when he and when Ruggles and Charlie uh Charlie Ruggles and um who's that other Jeff, the cow 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 cowboy friend with her in Paris. But they keep changing hats and they keep getting in the carriage and Ruggles keeps getting out and coming around again. And it's yeah. just it's like Laurel and Hardy routines. Yeah. And there's all the hat routines in The Awful Truth, where Cary Grant and they hide, the dog keeps trying to find the hat and she's trying to hide it. So Cary Grant doesn't know the music teacher's there. And yeah, I love the Cary's features. They're very personal films, they're very idiosyncratic. Besides, if. You know, Growing My Way was made for another time and isn't really a film that you can relate to now as you would have in 1943. But even yeah. so, if you don't tear up at the last scene, I don't want to know you. you oh, know, I know. It's the so good. Lady, but they bring his mother. But also the scene where they take Barry Fitzgerald out on the golf course. To me, I, I'd, I'd like nobody would have thought of that but McCary. Because he takes these priests, and often priests in movies are so holy. Right. You know, they're not like real people. The exception, I think, is Spencer Tracy in the boys' town in San Francisco. He's a much more kind of human priest, you know, but because he has rough edges, you know, Spencer Tracy kind of thing. But McCary made Barry Fitzgerald and Bing Crosby like real people. You know, they have their little foibles and they have the old versus new thing going. So they weren't up on a pillar. He could take them out on the golf course and have the old man, you know, in in the sand trap and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's very Hal Roach to, okay, we're going to cut to a golf course and do some golf routines for a bit. Yeah, let's do some golf gags for a while. All right, so the last chapter is another thing that you helped bring back, and, and I've already talked about this with Richard Simonton, which is oh sure the Edward Everett Horton shorts, which it's everyone wonderful, I think. Yeah, yeah, everyone who listens to this should already own that. It's a great I have to say <laughs> it's a great set of films. Especially Dad's Choice. Yeah. That's amazing because I had a friend say he thought that was a he's like, that's like a Leo McCary short. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's so on point. And Eddie is so funny. I mean, that, I mean, you know, he's always funny. Right. You see him in the sound films, but he's just as funny without his voice as he is with it. Though it's hard for us not to hear him. Well, it's like when you watch a, a W.C. Fields silent, you can hear the voice. 
you know, you know what he sounds like. So you can you can read the title, the dialogue title cards in the field's voice. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And the same thing with a lot of the Horton titles. It sounds like him. I mean, his persona was pretty well developed when he hit films. You know, I think that he had developed on stage. I think he knew who he was, you yeah. know, and, and what he could do. Because he was already in his in his 30s. I think he's like pushing 40 when he went into films. So, um, but the Roach, or not the Roach, but the Harold Lloyd people, I think they really had a good handle on his persona and how to put it in these shorts. You know, the, the plots that they surround him with and, and I think work very well. I think they had a good handle on that. All right. So that's, that's who you cover in Lame Brains 2. Are there other areas that you're thinking about? Hmm, I wonder whatever happened with, or things like that. You have. Oh yeah. There were a lot of things I was thinking about for the book that didn't make the final cut. So somewhere in the back of my head is a Lame Brains 3, uh, (laughs) even, even more good and bad and forgotten than silent comedy. But there were, there were people that I was thinking of. I wanted to write a whole, you know, an essay on the Al Christie comedies because not a lot of attention has been paid to the Christie comedies. Yeah, that's, that's one. I mean, here's, those are generally of, of very good quality and, you know, he was a legitimate rival to people like Roach and Senate up to a certain point. And then it just all comes to an end, but but yeah, yeah, no, in the it, early '30s, yeah, it's unfortunately he like went bankrupt, and and but in the in the teens and twenties, definitely, and and they're very the films are very well produced, and really they usually have real strong scripts or stories, and he had you know he had some big stars, he had Bobby Vernon, uh, Dorothy Devore, Jimmy Adams, and a lot you know they don't they don't have the same clout that you know some of the senate people do today but they were really popular in their day and uh and he had such a you know like 30 years making comedy shorts so it was a very substantial career and you know he discovered like eddie lyons and lee moran and first put them together and then they kind of went off on their own uh you know because he was involved with nestor very early he was making westerns and comedies starting around 1910 and they had, you know, one of the first units in California, you know, he is like probably the third of the big three comedy producers of shorts, but he, you know, he, he gets no attention and there's still a lot of people uh, that could be covered. Again, I have a lot of ideas for things, but it was just, I, I had more than enough. With all the chimps in the book, you know, yeah. Oh, there's so many animals, but then again, this, this this book was what I refer to as my pandemic epic yeah. because I was <laughs> writing it during the shutdown. So especially during the shutdown was when I was working on the animal section, which is 250 pages on its own. Right. So it really could have been its own book. So maybe I got carried away. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just we'll have to see what people think.
Lame Brains and Lunatics 2, More Good, Bad, and Forgotten of Silent Comedy, is out now from Bear Manor Media. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Bruce Calvert and Steve Massa, and to Ben Omart at Bear Manor Media. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. This will be the last episode of 2022, but we'll return after the holidays. Thanks and season's greetings. I hope when the new year comes, you don't have a repeat performance. <laughs> <laughs>